Judges chapter 7, we're going to backtrack just a little bit, but uh, Pastor mentioned Russell Anderson. Russell Anderson and I had a kind of unique, weird friendship. This guy was, was he 95 when he passed away? 97? 98. He was quite old. He was responsible for not just helping with churches, he's responsible for helping financially found, I think, five or six Bible colleges just in the United States. Um, and the college I went to, Grace Baptist College, that was one of the ones financially he had helped out. And I worked at the hotel. There was, at the time, one hotel in that town of 3,000 people that he would stay at, and he was an early bird. I worked the night shift, a third shift um, at the hotel, which was great because it was about two hours of work in an eight-hour shift, so I had six hours to do homework every night, which I did not use to do homework every night. Um, but he would get up at four o'clock in the morning for breakfast. Well, if you've ever stayed in a hotel, breakfast doesn't start till six. So guess what I got to make at four o'clock every morning? Breakfast for Brother Anderson. It was just he and I sitting there eating breakfast together at four o'clock in the morning, every morning. Well, Brother Anderson, as much money as he had, did you ever go to his house? He had a fairly modest house. It was just a three-bedroom, probably 2,000-square-foot house. The guy had $10 million in the bank and lived in a fairly basic house. But the one thing he splurged on was nice cars. He, every six to eight months, he got a brand new Jaguar or Cadillac. It just depended on which one suited his fancy at that moment. And he had just gotten a brand new Jaguar and wanted to show it off. Like he had gotten it the day before and his first drive was from where he lived near Detroit to where we were at at the top of Michigan. He's like, hey, you want to go for a ride when you get off work? I'm like, well, I need a ride to college. I didn't have a car at the time. And he's like, okay, seven o'clock rolls around. He comes back down and he throws me the keys. He's like, let's go for a ride. I'm 20 years old. I don't have a car because my last one died because I didn't take care of it. And he throws me the keys to a... Oh, Brother Anderson was my favorite. I was the coolest kid in college that day because I come cruising in at like 7.15, right before a 7.30 class. And they're like, you're driving his car? Yeah. He picked me up at the end of class that day and drove me back to my door. We just... And for the next like four or five years, every time he came up, we went for a drive in whatever his new car is. I've driven way more expensive cars than... Pro, one of his cars was worth more than my house is currently. And I just... Very cool old guy. I liked him. So I'm just... I'm glad he got to meet his Savior. He's actually genuinely been asking God to let him go to heaven since he was 90. But God said no, apparently. So one amazing human being. Uh, Judges chapter 7. Look at verse 1 with me again. We're going to backtrack. It's been a couple weeks, so we kind of need to not necessarily start over, but start at least at the beginning of this chapter here. Then Jerubbabel, who is Gideon, and all the people that were with him rose up early and pitched beside the well of Herod, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. In the, so what we've got here is Gideon and all of his Israel's army are at the top of this hill, Midian and their army is at the bottom. They're in the valley. So Israel's got the vantage point in this particular moment. It also gives them a really good chance to see the lay of the land, to see how the army's laid out, possibly formulate a good attack plan, all of those. So Gideon was really smart about this. And do you know why he was able to do this? Because it says he rose up early. I hate mornings. Anybody else like that? You just hate mornings. God should have started the day around, you know, 9 p.m.? I don't know. I, I'm a... I'm a I'm hardcore night owl. If it's, if it's stay up all night or get up in the morning, I'm staying up all night because it's just easier that way. I, I just, <sighs> Gideon kind, kind of proves me wrong though. The early bird gets the worm. The early Gideon gets the jump on the Midianites, you know, however that works. But he's here. He's here early. Why? Because he's got a, 
He's got to take on, at this point, the biggest enemy Israel's ever physically faced. You don't do that without some planning. So we got to give Gideon some credit here. This guy's a planner. He's thinking things through. He's getting there early. By the way, you should come to church early. Church starts at 10 a.m., not 10.15. Just throwing that out there. If Gideon can go early, so can you. Okay, verse 2. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many from, uh, for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Gideon, at this point, we find out in just a little bit at the end of chapter 3, he's got about 32,000 people total. Okay, 32,000, technically, and one, counting him. So he's got this group here, and God says, hey, that's too many. And then he gives him a reason why. And I, I would maybe underline this, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me. He doesn't want Israel to think we did this on our own. He wants to be able to prove unequivocally, unequivocally God did this. We had nothing to do with it. There's a lot of times in our own lives, we figure out our own ways to answer our own prayers. And I know that's a weird thing to say out loud, but you know you've done it at least once before. Where, oh, I need this, and then you spend tons of sleepless nights and early mornings racking your brain, figuring out a way to answer a prayer you could have just asked God. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, which means he also owns the hills. He created everything with a spoken word, but we'll stress out and go crazy trying to figure out our own problems when we could just hand it to him. And that's exactly what God's trying to get Gideon and Israel to figure out here is, I've got this, but you've got to let me handle it. And he's got to actually put Gideon and all of Israel in a place where there's no other answer than God did this. And sometimes he lets us as human beings get into an extremely low place in life so there is no way that we can physically answer our own prayers so that all we can say is God did this. Lest Israel vaunt themselves against me. How many times, and, and this is not, this is a rhetorical question, just something to think about. How many times have you answered your own prayer? The Bible says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. If God's the one that's supposed to answer prayer, and you've answered your own prayer. You've put yourself in the same level as God, because I can do that myself. That's not where we're supposed to be. If we put ourselves at the same level of God, that's called pride. Isn't that what got Satan kicked out of heaven? Something as simple as pride. We don't want to be in that position, and God's literally putting Israel in a position where there's no way they can say, we had any part in this. They can't do that. Look at uh, the end of verse two, saying, mine own hand hath saved me. Therefore, now therefore go to, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. So God throws out a, for Gideon's sake, a fairly random question. If anybody's afraid, let him go home. And there returned of the people 20 and 2,000, and there remained 10,000. For Gideon's sake, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, this had to have been a terrifying moment. He's got 32,000 people. He's right now going against roughly four to one odds, which is doable. That is not, it's not easy, but it would be a doable battle here. And all of a sudden, if anybody's afraid, go home. And two thirds plus of his army's like, see ya. And they go home. You realize what that means is these people were here out of nothing other than duty. They didn't actually want to be there. They just knew they needed to be there. Why? Because of honor or mom and dad said so or whatever it might be. 
How often do we come to church because we're supposed to? Not because we want to, not because we know we need to, but because just that's what we do. And we sit here, we have our Bible, we barely look at it, the words are just a blur, and we're here out of duty. Just go home. That's what God said, just, just go home. You're, you're wasting space, just go home. Now these guys were afraid. And by the way, I, I'm pretty sure I'd be on this group. See ya, I'm out. I gotta go home and take care of some snakes. Peace out, I'm done. I, I'd much rather deal with snakes than armed soldiers. I mean, some of you are thinking I'm a really idiot right there. You'd probably rather go against armed soldiers than a snake that's this long. But that's my choice here. Okay, this is also puts Gideon in a really unique place. We read these verses before, but turn with me to Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4. Again, God is getting Gideon and Israel. It's not just Gideon that's being affected by this. It's all the children of Israel that have to see this. They've chosen to forsake God again. We're in Zechariah chapter 4. It's near the end of the Minor Prophets. God's trying to get Israel to realize, you forsook me, but I've never forsaken you here. Zechariah chapter four, look at verse six. Then he answered and spake unto me saying, this is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of the hosts. It doesn't matter how big, how small, how strong, how weak, how rich, how poor, God can take care of it. He can always take care of it. And he's trying to get Israel into a place where they realize the God, Jehovah God, the Holy One of Israel, is the only God we should be serving. He's the only God we should be listening to because he's the only one that can take care of us. They've already gotten that concept. At least Gideon and the immediate people that were with Gideon got that concept. Why? Because Gideon's first task after being called into that judgehood, if you will, was he said God told him to do what? What was Gideon's very first thing he was supposed to do? Anybody remember? Tear down his father's altar. His dad's response is, let Baal take care of Baal. Baal never responded according to scriptures. Why? He can't. That altar got torn down. His statue got demolished. And that's just a piece of rock or a piece of wood or whatever it was made out of. And the people are starting to realize the gods we've been serving can do nothing for us. So God's putting these people in a position where it doesn't matter how small their army is. God's bigger. One more place. Go to Psalm chapter 20. Psalm chapter 20. Psalm chapter 20 and verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. We can put our trust in the army. We can put our trust in the military. America's got what is supposed to be the greatest military in the world. By the way, not the largest by any stretch of the imagination, but based on basic firepower, well, if our current president stays in, probably not. But based on basic firepower and technology, we should have the most advanced military in the world. But I don't know about you, but I don't have any trust in that. I know some great military service members, and I appreciate your service. But I don't have trust in that for my future. I don't. Because we got a couple wars on our record. We, we've either not won or come to a draw, and that's not a win and we're not doing so hot with some of that right now. So we could put our trust in that or we could put our trust in God himself who put them in place. And that's literally what God's trying to get Gideon to go in place to here or get in, get in his mind. Go to, back to Judges chapter seven, look at verse four. The Lord said unto Gideon, 
The people are yet too many. Bring them down unto the water, and I will try them for thee there. And it shall be that of whom I say unto thee, this shall go with thee, and the same shall go with thee. And of whomsoever I say unto thee, this shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. So God's like, look, there's still too many people. At this point, it's roughly 13, 14 to 1 odds. By some metrics, that might be winnable. Maybe. But not easily. I mean, have any of you ever fought 13 people at the same time by yourself in hand-to-hand combat when they're all armed with swords, spears, and arrows, and you might likely have, like, a plow or, or a hoe or maybe, maybe a shovel. Ooh. You might, if you're really lucky, have a pointy stick. If you were the Ninja Turtles, you might be able to pull that off, okay? But most of us, we're not taking on 13 people at one time. And God's saying, hey, that's still too many. We're going to do one more test here. And this is the one that is, is kind of, if you will, notorious throughout the Bible. This is a weird test. Have everybody go take a drink. Take 10,000 people to take a drink. Have any of you tried to organize like an elementary potty break? Okay? He's got 10,000 dudes. Hey, everybody, same time. We're all going to go take a drink and I want to watch. That's one of the creepiest things in the whole world that you could actively say, I want to watch you all take a drink. Would he just like stare at everybody? This is just kind of an, you got to think of in human standpoint, genuinely, this is awkward. This is weird. We're all going to take a drink at the exact same time and I just want to see what happens. Okay. You ever watched other people eat? It's disgusting. It's vile. Ew. I, I've been uh, taking pictures. I, I learned photography actually from Mrs. Petronico when I was in high school in the yearbook. Um, and I've, I've taken pictures of all kinds of events and weddings and things like that. The one time I stopped taking pictures at major events is when people are eating. Nobody looks good when they're eating. Nobody. Uh, some of the most unflattering images I have of some of you was during food things. It's not great. And Gideon is like, hey, God actually tells Gideon, this is all God's idea. I want you to do this. I know it's awkward. I know it might be weird, but I got a point to it. And trying to decipher God's exact point on this, people have debated for years. We talked about this a little bit ago. Go with me to verse five. So he brought down the people unto the water and the Lord said unto Gideon, everyone that lappeth of the water with his tongue as a dog lappeth, him shalt thou set by himself. Likewise, everyone that boweth down upon his knees to drink, and the number of them that lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, were 300 men. But all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. One of the things we actually almost never speak about in here is Gideon followed God's words to a T. You do know that, right? In order for any of this to work, we're we're talking the Gideon that we constantly talk about, oh, he doubted God, he didn't have any faith. He followed God's exact commands word for word here, as odd as they may be. Make everybody go take a drink at the same time and just watch everybody. Okay, whatever you say, God. And he does it. First off, 9,700 men, this is where we left off a couple weeks ago, 9,700 men went hands and knees and went face first into the water to take a drink. That's just weird. 
Okay, uh, Matt Gerber and I have done some, some crazy runs. Matt's done crazy runs. I just happened to try to keep up with him. Hey, some of those runs, though, we're out in the middle of nowhere on a trail somewhere. I hate the trails in the state of Connecticut because none of them are flat. But Matt thinks they're amazing. We're doing another one as soon as he comes back in June. I keep signing up because I like Matt. I hate these things. But one of the things we carry around is what's called a life straw. They're about this long. Have you ever seen those? It's like a little filter thing because you can literally drink out of almost anything and it makes the water clean. Part of the reason we do that is we carry backpacks with about two liters worth of water. Well, when it's 90 degrees outside and you're sweating buckets while running up and down the sides of every mountain in the state of Connecticut, you run out of water. Well, those life straws, those are important. The way you actually drink out of those a lot of times is you have to get on your hands and knees and stick your face down in the water to drink out of it. You can drink out of a puddle and it actually will filter all of it and keep it clean. They're pretty cool. Uh, Brother McCullough, who goes in and out of Africa, they buy these things in bulk because it's one of the ways to make the water clean enough for them to regularly drink without getting sick. These guys didn't have that. They're just going face first in the water here. This wasn't like a life-saving measure, which gives us an odd thought here. What had been going on in Israel that made that a normal way of drinking water? You ever thought about that for a second? What was life like that that's how they drank water regularly? Because this is 9,700 out of 10,000, meaning... 97% of the population thought that was a normal way to drink water. What had life been truly like if that's how they were forced to drink water? You realize that these people were treated like animals. That's how animals drink water. They were so debased, so low, that they drank water like an animal does. And that was, that was the normal kind of giving you an, uh, at least an inclination of where these people are at on a social economic level. Are we okay? So God devises this little plan. I'm going to take all, you're going to take all 10,000 to take a drink. Depending on how they drink is what I'm going to choose. The one, the 300 that kneel down, scoop water up and bring the water up to their mouth. Those are the ones we're going to set aside. I want those guys. There's been a lot of debate that one of the, the smartest if you will, explanations of that is these are the guys that are actually actively paying attention to what's around them while they're taking a drink. From a military perspective, that's probably a great idea. The other big one is, based on what we know from the remaining chapter here and the battle that takes place, Gideon's going to need guys that are alert and paying attention to basic things around them, some basic common sense. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. More than likely, these are those young, foolhardy guys that are like, oh yeah, I'm gonna go kill everybody. The ones that grew up playing video games their whole life and think war, you actually respawn when you die. You know, those geniuses that, you know, that boot camp gives them PTSD. You know, those kinds of lovely human beings. I, that's the kind of guys that I'm, I imagine are these 9,700. They're all, oh, we're going to go to war. Why? Because for generations, they've heard about God doing these amazing things in battle, and they wanted to be war heroes more than likely. But Gideon needed 300 men that had some common sense that could follow some directions because what God was about to ask, ask them to do was odd and had to be followed to a very specific T, or it didn't work. So God needed people that were paying attention. God needs people today that are paying attention. There's a lot of junk in our world. Brother Adam was preaching to our junior high and high school students in chapel, 
And he actually, in the middle of his message, he apologized. He said, I am sorry. I'm sorry that the world is as terrible as it is. You're growing up in a world that's the worst it's been in generations, and I'm sorry. It's our job, moms, dads, grandparents, aunts, uncles, wherever you're at on that spectrum, to be paying attention to protect them. You realize that what these 300 plus men are gonna do here is to follow God's instructions, to be paying attention, have some common sense because the next generation might survive because of what they do. That's our job. Pay attention. There aren't as many of us today as there used to be as far as Christians go. So it's our job to pay attention, to follow God's commands, by the way, to a T, even the ones we might not like. Why? Not for our sake, but for all the kids on the other end of that building's sake, because we need them to make it. We need them to make it. Look at verse six. And the number of them that lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, were 300 men. But all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, By the 300 men that lapped will I save you and deliver the Midianites into thine hands. And let all the other people go every man unto his place. So God tells Gideon, These 300 that drank this way, save them. Everybody else, send them home. So the people took victuals in their hands and their trumpets. They grabbed some food, grabbed some basic supplies, and they've got trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man unto his tent, and retained those 300 men. And the host of Midian was beneath him in the valley. This is just, just a completely random thing. In verse 8, it says they took victuals in their hands. They've got their food and supplies and their trumpets. This is implying that all these people showed up with a trumpet. That's weird. Anybody bring a trumpet with you to church today? No? If, if anybody raised their hand, I was going to be really messed up here, okay? That's just not a common thing for us to carry around. These guys, Gideon's like, hey, we need our army. And they're like, honey, where's my trumpet? A different world, okay? Different world. We don't live in that world. Why do you think they would have needed a trumpet going into battle? That was actually a really common tool in the ancient world because they didn't have walkie-talkies. You communicated over long distances by shofar, the ram's horn trumpet, and they would have used that because a lot of times in battle, you're splitting groups up here and here and here so you can communicate what's happening with different blasts of a trumpet. It actually would have been a very common tool in war to bring your trumpet. Today, we don't do that because we have things like phones and computers and other forms of communication. But for long-distance communication, we're not talking like across the street. We're talking like across a valley. You're not going to yell that over battle, but a trumpet could be heard. So this actually was. As odd as it is for us to randomly carry around a trumpet, that was actually a fairly common tool to carry around. Just throwing that out there. Look at verse 9 with me. And it came to pass the same night. So we're given the indication that these 32,000 men show up. 22,000 go home because they're afraid. 10,000 go take a drink. 9,700 are sent home. That's all in one single day. Gideon's had a big day here. And on that same night, the Lord said unto him, Arise, get thee down unto the host. So he's had this crazy day. He went from 32,000 men showing up for battle to now he's left with 300 to prep for battle. He's probably stressed out. He's probably exhausted. And God's like, hey, I got something for you to do. Okay, arise, get thee down to the host, for I've delivered it into thine hand. 
Gideon is now supposed to go down to Midianite's army. He's supposed to go spy on them, if you will. Why? For I've delivered them, delivered it into thine hand. God's about to give Gideon something he desperately, desperately needs. He's about to give Gideon something. I, I personally believe if you've read through this account from Judges chapter 6 into the beginning of chapter 7, that Gideon has been wanting. It's called hope. He's about to give Gideon hope. Amen. Hope can keep things going, keep people alive for an extended period of time. And God's about to give Gideon that and just serve it to him on a silver platter here. Verse 10, but if thou fear to go down, go thou with Pharaoh, thy servant, down to the host. God knows who he's talking to. But if thou fear to go down, take somebody with you. You, you realize this is the guy that was threshing wheat behind a wine press. Why? Because he didn't want anybody to see what he was doing. This is the guy that didn't trust God to the point where he had to ask him to do the opposite versions of the same miracle a couple times in a row just, just to confirm what was happening after God had already literally lit his sacrifice on fire with fire from a rock. This is that guy, and God, God knows who we are. God knows our weakness. He knew Gideon was afraid. He knows that you're afraid. He knows that you and I worry. He knows that you and I stress to the max over the dumbest things all the time. He knows who we are. Why? Because we're fearfully and wonderfully made. He's known us since the womb. He knows exactly who and what we are. But if we're willing, he will use us either way. So he knows Gideon. He's about to give Gideon some hope, but he also knows this is the guy that's not going to go down and sneak around the Midianite army by himself, so he needs a friend with him. Verse 11, and thou shalt hear what they say, and afterward thine hand shall be strengthened to go down unto the host. So God tells him, if you're afraid, take somebody with you, but you're going down because you need to hear what the Midianites are talking about. This isn't necessarily just him spying. Israel's got a, a long, at this point, like 250-year-long history of actually very effective spying. Do you remember that? The children of Israel, when they first uh, got out of Egypt, they sent in the 12 spies. That had only been about a month, month and a half after they'd left Egypt. Sent the spies, and the spies came back and said, no way, we're going in here. That's why they traveled the wilderness for 40 years, because of this effective spying. Now, they had some pretty poor choices in spy, unfortunately. They sent more spies in later on. That's how they took out Jericho. Do you remember? So spying has actually been part of Israel's modus operandi when it comes to war for a long time. But that's not why God's sending them down. He needs Gideon to hear something and hear something very specific. There are no coincidences with God. None. Then he went down with Pharaoh. This is verse 11. His servant unto the outside of the armed men that were in the host. So he goes to the very edge here. The outside of the armed men, this would have been that guard at the edge of the perimeter. He just goes to the very, very edge. Why? He's also afraid. He's also, he's the bad guy in this instance. You do realize this, he's not going to walk up. Hi, my name's Gideon. I'm here because God sent me. How are you today? Can I tell you about church? This isn't door-to-door soul winning here. He's going and he's, he's sneaking in. Verse 12, and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the children of the east lay along in the valley like grasshoppers for multitude. And their camels were without number as the sand by the seaside for multitude. I love when God gives us very descriptive language like this. This is giving you and I a bird's eye view, a, a point of view of what Gideon is seeing. He's sneaking down and this valley is just 
covered in people and camels <laughs> as far as you can possibly see. And now it's also dark, which means it's lit up by campfires and torches and all this stuff. And he just, oh. this is a guy that's already afraid. He's proven that time and time again. So what does God ask him to do? Go down, get as close as you can at night. And the very first thing that's recorded for us is the vast, gigantic size of this army. Gideon's army went from 32,000, roughly four to one odds. He's at 301. And God tells him, go see what they're doing. Do you think this made Gideon more sure of himself, more, more, more confident in what God can do? No, if, if Gideon was anything like me, he's more terrified than he's ever been right here. Because he's just, oh, no. Huh. I, I would have been with those first 22,000. All right, I'm out. Sorry, God, you got to find somebody else. But look at the next verse, verse 13. And when Gideon was come, Behold, there was a man that told a dream unto his fellow. God uses dreams in some unique ways in the Old Testament. So Gideon just happens. Look at the way it's written. When Gideon was come, behold, like as in this just so happened to happen at the exact same time, this guy's telling one of his friends about a dream. It says, behold, I dreamed a dream, and lo, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the host of Midian and came unto a tent and smote it that it fell and overturned it, that the tent lay along. And his fellow answered and said, this is nothing else save the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. For into his hand hath God delivered Midian and all the host. This is an incredibly specific dream and interpretation that Gideon just happens to walk up on. There are no coincidences with God. He doesn't make mistakes. And by the way, the dream itself is pretty specific. A cake of barley bread. The only people who ate barley bread during this era in history were the poorest of the poor. Because barley was almost exclusively used to feed animals unless you had nothing else to eat. Anybody in here eaten barley before? Yeah, it's not terribly great. It's not the tastiest thing in the world. doesn't matter really what you do with it. It ends up, especially the bread, ends up very gritty. Uh, you feel like you need to brush your teeth after every bite of that. It's just, it's not the greatest stuff in the world. Again, typically reserved for things like horses and cows and animals and really poor people. Lo, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the host. It just rolled its way in here. So food for the poorest of the poor hit a tent, and the tent fell, overturned. By the way, cake of barley bread. On average, I had a booger of a time Googling, what size bread did people eat in the ancient world? There's about a million and one potential answers, okay? But on average, the average size cake of bread, from what I could find out, was somewhere around this big around. Right? Think like slightly on the small side of like a corn tortilla. Does that make some logical sense there? And part of the reason for that is they'd actually roll them out and make them small because that was typically single serve. It was just easier. They didn't slice bread back then. You ripped off chunks of it, so having them relatively small. So we're talking a piece of bread, a cake of barley bread, somewhere in this range, somewhere. I can't be specific, but based on what I can research, somewhere around this end, knocked over an entire tent. 
This wasn't your little Walmart tent that you set up in your backyard for your kids to camp out overnight in the middle of the summer. These tents were typically fairly large. There were, in some instances in the ancient world, a family's tent could be as big as this room, not quite as tall, but physically covered about as much area as this room for one family. Huge tents. This is military-level tents, so we definitely have to consider these being a little bit smaller. But when's the last time something this big knocked over an entire tent? That's not terribly common, okay? This is giving an indication that God's going to use something really small to take out something really big. And here's the other one. Look at this, verse 14, and his fellow. So these two random guys, there's just this guy that has a dream, and it just says there was a man. So we don't know who these people were. And his fellow answered, this is nothing else save the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. How did they know who their specific enemy was? You ever thought about that? There's 130, 140-ish thousand Midianites. Gideon's army, even at its biggest, was significantly smaller. How did they know Gideon specifically? There's two answers. Number one, God. That's a viable, great answer. Number two, Gideon may, may have gotten some notoriety for destroying Baal's altar. Do you remember that? Remember all the men of the town were talking about that? That would have been a highly uncommon thing to have happened. And he may have gotten some notoriety about that. You realize if 32,000 men showed up for battle, people know who they're going to see. Word started to spread. So Gideon, at this point, Gideon's now public enemy number one. But look at the way he responds. For into his hand hath God delivered Midian and all the host. This is the army Gideon's about to go fight against. And they know they're gonna lose. Have you ever thought about that when you've read through this account? They know they're gonna lose. That's kind of a mind-blowing thought. As I was rereading this the last few weeks, I, I don't honestly think that's ever dawned on me before. They know they're gonna lose. Have you ever gone into something knowing you're gonna lose? When I was in school here, we didn't have the most stellar sports teams in the history of the world. We played this one school in Warwick, Rhode Island. I hated those guys. We lost the basketball game 77 to 11. I scored nine of those points and they were all foul shots. Okay, if I'm the highest scorer in a basketball game, have you seen this? You're not doing well. We went in knowing we're going to lose. We didn't know it was going to be that astronomically bad. These guys are the big team, and they know we're going to lose. That, that's pretty intriguing. And you realize what that did for Gideon? Look at verse 15, and I'm done. And it was so when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and the interpretation thereof that he worshiped and returned into the host of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord hath delivered into your hand the host of Midian. God gave Gideon hope. Amen. By the way, we all raise our hands multiple times every week because we've got something we need God to answer. We need something God to, we need God to do something for us. If we let him, he can take care of it. He's already given us hope. Read your Bible. There's promise after promise after promise after promise. He will give us the hope we need 
if we're willing. That's, that's the thing that keeps popping up over and over and over again in the book of Judges is God's using unassuming people with unassuming skills. Why? Because they were willing to do something amazing for God. Are you and I willing to do that? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for everything that you do.